great. I know you've all experienced this, but it is great to be able to learn something new. Or if you already have uh, a skill, a talent, an ability, an understanding, to be able to add to that and enhance that and increase that and do something better or think more rightly about something. But you know, all of that learning, it requires commitment, it requires discipline, and it requires effort. God just doesn't zap us with the ability to do or think new things. Uh, one way I got to experience that recently was my husband and I took a little weekend trip with our son. It was just the three of us. We went down to San Diego, and they wanted to rent something called One Wheels. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they're like a skateboard with a giant wheel in the center. And so they rented those and said, you know, this is great. We're having a great time. You know, mom, get on the one wheel. You got to do this. You can do it. You used to skateboard. Okay, you know, so I got on the one wheel and thought, you know, that was pretty fun. I went a little slower than they did, made sure my helmet was on tight, but it was fun. Well, not last summer, but the summer before, the COVID summer, when we couldn't really vacation or do anything, my husband said, we're going to get one wheels. We're going to be one wheelers. You and me, we're going to go all around in one wheel. And I was like, oh, yay, woohoo. And so my husband got uh, the One Wheel XR. It's the big guy's one wheel. It's got a big wheel on it. It goes really fast. The battery life lasts forever. I mean, it's the, you know, mad machine. And I got the pint. That's the little one. It's smaller. It's lighter. It's easier to maneuver. And most importantly, it's easier to stop. Because being on these one wheels, once you're on them and going, it's not that bad. But getting off is a project. Uh, you've got to learn to get off these things. So the pint has something called simple stop, where you just go back a little bit, the machine disengages, and you can get off, which was a lot of commitment, uh, discipline, and effort for me to learn. But praise God, I learned it, and we had a great time together, cruising around our city and just spending time together on these one wheels. Well, this last summer... My husband said, you need to upgrade. You don't want to be on that pint. That's so little. You don't have the same, you know, speed, power, you know, ability to carve, and the battery life. And I was like, oh, no, I love my pint. I don't want to trade it in. And he was insistent, you got to upgrade. you got to get the XR. So I ended up with the XR. And I was horrified because the XR doesn't have the simple stop. The stopping procedure is so much more complicated. You have to perfectly balance yourself over this wheel. You have to take your left leg and put all of your weight onto the toes of your left leg, which disengages the motor. You're balancing there for a microsecond. The motor shuts off. The wheel falls down to the left, and you neatly disengage. All in less than a second. Well, you know what? A lot of commitment, a lot of discipline, and a lot of effort, and I was able to get the XR, and my husband was right. It's funner than the pint, and we've had an awesome time just cruising around, spending time together, enjoying time on these one wheels, and I do thank God for helmets and wrist guards, but we have had so much fun, and it could not have happened, though. 
It couldn't have happened if I hadn't made that mental choice. You know, I am going to do this. I'm going to make the commitment to do this. I'm going to uh, put in the discipline and the energy and the effort to make sure that I learn this new hobby. And, you know, learning hobbies, learning skills, talents, and abilities is and can be super rewarding, but how much more? How much more rewarding is it when we discipline ourselves to learn truths from God's word? And it's the same way. God just doesn't zap us with knowledge about his word. It takes those same things. It takes a commitment to learn. It takes discipline or investment, uh, repeated hard work. It takes energy and it takes effort. And as we begin our adventure through the book of Exodus, we're going to need those same things. But I guarantee you that the reward is going to be well worth it. Uh, Old Testament scholar Abner Chow, who's a professor at the Master's Seminary, he said, if you don't know Exodus, you are actually missing something in your Christian walk with God. He said you are deficient and you lack something that would actually make you whole. I mean, talk about a reason to learn this book, right? A, le a reason to put in that commitment, that discipline, and that effort. Uh, we have no choice here, right? There's no way that we can opt out of learning this great book. So we're going to spend the next few minutes getting kind of a general overview of Exodus so that we can see what we have to look forward to. We can get a glimpse of what we're going to be learning because it is going to require and take hard work. So open your Bibles to the first chapter of Exodus or pull it up on your phone or you can jot down the references as I mention them. But we're going to, again, kind of do a bird's eye view of Exodus so that we can be motivated uh, for the commitment, the discipline, and the energy that it's going to take to glean this rich reward from this book. And as we look at the first chapter of Exodus, we're going to see that God's people, Israel, they were enslaved in a foreign land. And the natural question would be, how did God's people end up slaves? And before we get to the first point, I'm going to do a real quick background, just kind of catching us up as to how God's people even became enslaved in Egypt. Uh, in Genesis 12, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God made a promise to a man named Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people, the father of the nation of Israel, and he told him, Abraham, I'm going to give you and your wife uh, so many descendants that they'll, you'll have a multitude of descendants. He said, I'm going to give you a land that I'm promising you, and I am going to bless you. And that's known as the Abrahamic covenant or the Abrahamic promise that God made to him. A covenant is a promise. And by the end of Genesis, when we get to Genesis chapter 37, we see uh, Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, and his other great-grandsons. And this family, uh, Abraham and Sarah, his wife, had grown into a large family. And the problem was with this great-grandson, Joseph, the other great-grandsons, his brothers, they hated him. 
And because they hated him, they trafficked him. They sold him uh, as a slave to a foreign nation. And he was enslaved. While he was enslaved, he was falsely accused. He went to jail after being falsely accused. And through all of that, this man, Joseph, continued to trust in God. Uh, when he was in jail, having been falsely accused, after having been trafficked by his own brothers, uh, he still, as I said, trusted in God. He met two men in jail who had these dreams. They talked to him about it. God said, I'll give you the interpretation of their dreams. Uh, because he trusted in God, God did give him that interpretation. What he said came to pass because it was God's words, not his. And time went on. Well, time went on, and one of the men that was in jail with him worked for the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt. And the pharaoh had these troubling dreams. And so they pulled this man, Joseph, out of jail and asked him to interpret the pharaoh's troubling dreams. Uh, because Joseph trusted in God and God was communicating to him, God gave him the correct interpretation of these dreams. And they ended up elevating Joseph from a prisoner, from a Hebrew prisoner to this high position in Egyptian society, basically second to only the Pharaoh, the king of all of Egypt. And part of what happened was the dreams that Pharaoh had related to a coming famine on the world, uh, a famine in the known world at that time, Egypt and the surrounding area, where there would be no food for a season. And that famine providentially led Joseph's family to come to him in Egypt. And his brothers arrived before him to get food. It had been 13 years that had past. Uh, Joseph looked like an Egyptian now. His brothers did not recognize him. And Joseph finally reveals that he's the brother. He's second in command in Egypt, and he is the brother that they trafficked 13 years ago. And the brothers freaked out. And look what Joseph says in Genesis 45.5. You can just jot this down and look it up later because it's an important verse for all of us. He says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You trafficked me here. You did something wrong. You sold me here. You're responsible for your sin. You've done something wrong. He says, you sold me here. But God, for God sent me before you to preserve life. This incredible truth that we're going to have to really understand if we're to successfully live the Christian life. People do bad things. Uh, these brothers sold Joseph. They trafficked him. But he said at the same time, God sent him. These two components going on at the same time. They sold, God sent they were responsible for their sin, and yet God was able to, able to sovereignly override all of that and work it for the preserving of life, as it says in Genesis 45.5. So the whole family then moves to Egypt where there's food, and they're shown favor there because of what Joseph has done for the land and given the land called Goshen, which was a good land. And at the end of the book of Genesis, in Genesis 52, 20, uh, Joseph reiterates the same thing to his brothers before he dies. Uh, Genesis 50, 20, he says, as for you, 
You meant evil against me. You were wrong, and you're responsible for your wrong. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Uh, we see Joseph really comprehended and apprehended a truth about God that many of us as Christians fail to grasp. And so we don't enjoy the freedom. We don't enjoy the ability uh, to see God's goodness in the midst of some dark and discouraging circumstances in our life. But Joseph went on to die, and his family continued to remain in Egypt. And they lived there for almost 300 years they lived there for 275 years, and if you think about it, 275 years is longer than the United States has even been a nation. So they lived there for a long time, and their population grew and grew and grew and exploded. And in time, there were over 2 million uh, descendants of Abraham, Jews, Hebrews there in Egypt. The pharaohs, they came and they went, and when we begin Exodus, the text says that there was a new pharaoh, uh, a new king in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. He said, what's this, you know, favor shown to Joseph and his family? We don't need to worry about that anymore. That was a long time ago. We don't need to show these people special treatment. In fact, uh, we could use these people as our slaves and they were afraid of their growing numbers, the Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, so they enslaved Israel. They made them slaves, and they treated them very harshly. Well, remember the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12, Genesis 15? He said that you are going to be a mighty nation, many people, and that had come to pass. There were millions of them, but he said they were going to have a land, and they didn't. And he said they were going to be blessed, and it didn't look like they were blessed. And God's people probably thought, has God failed on his promise? Is he not able to keep what he said he would do? And at just the right time, God moves his people to call out to him in prayer, and he hears their prayers. If you want to look at Exodus 2, 24 and 25, Exodus 2, 24 and 25, it says, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant, his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew, God knew and God raised up a unique man. His name is Moses to save or to deliver God's people from this slavery and you know, uh, as we begin this journey, it's important that we realize that all these things apply to us. We see this in the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is talking about God's people in uh, Israel under the leadership of Moses and the things that they experienced and encountered. And he says that these things were given as an example to us. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things that was Israel under Moses's leadership happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, for your instruction and my instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. So the first thing that we can learn from all of this, our first point is rejoice 
in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation because just as God raised up Moses to deliver his people from slavery, God has provided us with Christ, the ultimate one who has delivered us from our slavery as we put our trust in him. Look at Romans uh, 16, 17, and 18. Romans 6, sorry, 17 and 18. Romans 6, 17 and 18 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, we all once were slaves too, slaves to sin, bondage to sin, and the penalty of sin. So thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin through Christ, have become slaves of righteousness. So we, like Israel in Egypt, were in bondage, enslaved to our sin and the consequences of sin. But in Christ, we have been set free, set free to serve the Lord or to be slaves of the Lord. So God allowed Moses uh, to live a life on a unique journey and had this special plan for God's, for Moses's life. And uh, God actually met with Moses while Moses was shepherding in Midian. He had gone to Midian. Uh, and God told Moses that he was going to raise him up to deliver his people, Israel. And he actually appeared to him in a burning bush. And as God is telling Moses that he's going to use him to deliver Israel, Moses is probably thinking, I'm sitting here as a shepherd with some sheep looking at a burning bush Who's going to believe me? And that's what he says. And God says to him in Exodus 3.14, look at Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, you will say to them, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That I am is the name of God. It's Yahweh. The Hebrew there is Yahweh. And I am means that God is the creator, the sustainer of all life. He is the Lord of all. And God's saying to Moses, tell them that Yahweh, I am the creator, the sustainer, the Lord of all, is going to set them free from their slavery. So Moses, he left his wife and his two sons in Midian, met up with his brother Aaron, and did as God commanded. And he brought a message first to God's people. Uh, look at Exodus 6-7. Exodus 6-7, he said, to his people through Moses, his prophet, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And if your text says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God, not I am Yahweh your God. It really says Yahweh because it's capital L, small cap O-R-D, which reveals that the translation there came from the Hebrew word Yahweh. And we'll learn about that in lesson two. So uh, Moses and his brother Aaron, after revealing God's plan to his people, they went to meet with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who was actually considered to be a god in that culture, and demanded that the Pharaoh release God's people from slavery. 
Uh, look at Exodus 7:16. Exodus 17:16 says, "And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, that's to Pharaoh, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. So Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, you need to let God's people go so that they can serve him and release them. And Pharaoh laughed. He said, really? Who is Yahweh? Uh, there are so many gods in Egypt. There were pyramids. There, were the, there was the Sphinx. There were monuments and statues to all the gods of Egypt. There were many, many gods in Egypt. And Pharaoh says, Yahweh? I've never even heard of him. And then we see in Exodus 9.16 that God had a plan for all of this. God says, I've got a purpose and a plan in all of this. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you, that's Pharaoh, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God had an incredible plan in this uh, to demonstrate himself so that not only Pharaoh, but all of Egypt and the known world would see that he, Yahweh, is Lord of all. And he orchestrated 10 plagues. We've probably heard of those 10 plagues. And through those 10 plagues, he plummeled Egypt while he protected his people, Israel. And if you think about it, he didn't need the plagues. He didn't need to do it that way. He could have just destroyed and done what he wanted. But he did this again, like uh, Exodus 9.16 says, for a purpose. He had a purpose and a plan. And the plan was to reveal himself to Israel, to Egypt, to the Pharaoh, and to the known world. And God, using these plagues, systematically decimates the gods of Egypt to demonstrate who he really is. The plagues, uh, turning the my, mighty Nile River into blood. I mean, can you imagine that? The mighty Nile, the source of all life in Egypt, is turned to blood. And then a plague of frogs, and then a plague of gnats, and then a plague of flies, and then their livestock dying, and then boils, and hail, and locusts, and a plague of darkness. Uh, the text is going to say darkness so thick that it was like a spiritual darkness, a felt darkness that you could feel. And we're going to use a chart in our lessons. We have a chart where we'll fill in all the different plagues. Uh, we'll look at what they, were, what they are. We'll look at the potential gods of Egypt that were being dethroned or decimated through these plagues and the purpose of the plagues. And yet through all these things, the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, he wouldn't budge. He didn't budge until the 10th and final plague. Uh, where God said that he would execute judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt uh, by allowing, by orchestrating the death of the firstborn male in every household. And so God allowed all the firstborn males in the household of Egypt to die. Uh, and yet he made provision for his people. He made provision for Israel. He told them to keep the angel of death from coming to your house. You're to slaughter a lamb. 
and take the blood of that lamb and paint, literally paint the blood over the doorposts or on the doorposts of your home and be ready to leave because I am going to then delivery, deliver you from slavery. And we see that in Exodus 12, 13. Exodus 12, 13 says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And God says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Wow, that sounds so familiar because we too are saved by the blood, right? Uh, remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We as Christians are not saved by the blood of a lamb, but we're saved by the blood of the lamb. And eventually, then Pharaoh said, fine, go, serve your God, serve Yahweh. And God was with them to lead them and to guide them along the way. Look at, this, at Exodus 13, 22. Exodus 13, 22, it says, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God's presence there was with the people to lead them and to guide them on their new journey. And he is with us too. He's with us to lead us and guide us on our journey. But there was a last turn of events after Pharaoh had let these people go he realized his slave force was gone and basically said, what did I do? And so he sent his warriors out on their mighty weapons of war, their chariots with their horses, which were like the most advanced military machines in the land at the time, going against Israel who were just traveling on foot. And so they're hobbling along on foot, and these military machines come charging in on them. They're backed up against the sea. They have nowhere to go. And God tells Moses, tell Israel to go forward. Forward? It's a sea. Go forward. And God parts that sea in two, and he splits the sea into two great water walls that are supernaturally held up. The ground between the two walls is completely dry, and God's people cross through this sea as he holds the water walls up for them. Well, Pharaoh, with his mighty machines, they decide that they're going to go in after Israel. They're going to do the same thing, and they go in, and God unleashes that water and hurls them into the sea. Their chariots, their weapons of war, all their strength is again decimated in a final display of the power of Yahweh over Egypt and all the gods of Egypt so that all would know that Yahweh alone is the Lord. And when they get to the other side, uh, in Exodus 15, Moses breaks out into this incredible song of praise, rejoicing in the great salvation of Israel. Look at Exodus 15 too. Exodus 15 too, it says, Yahweh is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. They were rejoicing in the great salvation that God had wrought on their behalf. 
Israel was enslaved in Egypt. We too were enslaved to sin and the consequences and the penalty of sin. God raised up Moses to deliver Egypt or Israel from Egypt, and God has raised up Christ to deliver us from our sin. And in the end, to deliver Moses himself too. So as we're called to rejoice in our salvation, we really need to rejoice in our salvation every day. I mean, this should be an everyday thing for the Christian. We should rejoice in our salvation every day because we will live in a world with troubling circumstances and darkness and difficulties. But no matter how troubling our circumstances are, no matter how dark or confusing the things may be around us, uh, like Israel, we as Christians, we've been saved. We've been saved, and so we can and we should rejoice. We should rejoice because God has saved us. God has saved us, and he promises to work every single pain, every sorrow, every tear, every area of confusion and sadness together for his glory for our good, and as a witness to the watching world. But that doesn't mean that God's people are going to live free of difficulty. And within days after this amazing event, God's people were miserable. They were complaining. They had just seen with their eyeballs all these wondrous works, and they didn't get the food they wanted in the timing that they wanted. And so they were grumbling and complaining. They were grumbling against Moses, and Moses is saying, what are you doing? You're not grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God, the God who has just saved you. Uh, look at Exodus 16.8. In Exodus 16.8, Moses said, when Yahweh gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because Yahweh has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we your grumbling is not against us, but against Yahweh. And Israel needed to learn that they were saved, that they might be able to depend and trust in the Lord. And it's the same thing with us. We need to learn to depend and trust in the Lord. And we also need to learn to share our joy with the watching world. We need to share our joy, the joy of our salvation with others. And that's what Moses and Israel did. Moses reunited with his family in Midian, uh, his wife, his two sons, and his father-in-law. Now, his father-in-law was a prominent man in Midian. In fact, he was a priest in Midian. Uh, he was a priest uh, over a false religion. And Moses shares the joy of what God has done for Israel with his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, look at Exodus 18.8. In Exodus 18.8, it says, Then Moses told his father-in-law, that's Jethro, all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. And because of that, because of that great joy of their salvation, Jethro put his faith in Yahweh too. And he got saved. He got saved because of the joy that Moses and Israel had in their salvation. So now that God's people are saved, uh, they're redeemed out of their slavery, he gives them 
an incredible gift. He graces them with his law. The second point here is thank God for his law. He saved them and then he gives them his law so they might know how to live. Uh, look at Exodus 19.5. Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now we know that obedience to God's law never saves anyone. We know that we can't be saved by the keeping of the law. The law points us to our need for Christ as we fail. Uh, think about Romans 3.20. It says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law reveals to us our inability to keep it and points us to Jesus. But nevertheless, the law is a beautiful reflection of God and his character and who he is. It is a gift to us to show us how to thrive in our relationship with him and how to live in harmony with one another. Look at Exodus 20.20. Exodus 20.20, it says, Moses said to the people, don't fear, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. We don't want to sin. When we sin, we have regrets. When we sin, we look back at our life and say, I should not have done that. I took a wrong turn. That wasn't wise. And the law keeps us from sin. It's our instruction and our guide that we might do right. So those that he saves, he graces with his law that they might know, again, how to love him. We see that in commandments one through four in the Ten Commandments. One through four are about our relationship to God. And then five through ten, the last six commandments are about our relationship to one another, that we might be able to love him and to love one another. And we're going to have another chart in our lessons, a Ten Commandments chart, where we list out and memorize all those commandments, and we figure out how they apply to our unique lives and our unique circumstances today, because the law, we'll see, is a beautiful gift. It's a beautiful gift, not given to save us, but given to us because we're saved. So the text goes on and shows the application of these Ten Commandments to our life. Uh, how do you live out these Ten Commandments? And it really reveals the heart of God behind the law. Uh, look, for example, at Exodus 22, 26, and 27. Exodus 22, 26, and 27 says, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge... You shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that's his only covering, and his cloak is for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God's saying if somebody gives you their cloak, uh, their jacket, their, their down jacket as a pledge uh, for something you've loaned to them, give it back to them at night so that they won't be cold. The law reveals the compassionate heart, the kindness of our God, and his people recognized the beauty of this law, and they agreed, we want to live according to God's commands. Look at Exodus 24, 7. 
Exodus 24, 7, Moses had written down all this application of the law. And it says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. They said, we will do this. There was this contract, this covenant again, so to speak, between God and between his people, Israel. And you know those Ten Commandments, uh, those two stone tablets that we see with the Ten Commandments written on them? We've seen pictures of it or movies of it or sculptures of it. We often think of, you know, God put half the commandments on one tablet and half the commandments on another. But, you know, the text says that the commandments were written on the front and the back of the tablets. And scholars go on to say that, you know, that's not actually what it was. All the commandments were probably on one tablet, and all the commandments were on another tablet. And this was the sign of a covenant, a contract between God and his people. Just like when we get a lease or a loan for a car or a mortgage for a house, we sign those papers, and there are copies, right? Copies for us and copies for the other party. Two copies of the same thing saying, this is what you've agreed to. Here's God's copy, and here's Israel's copy. You don't want to break this covenant. And as we study Exodus, we're going to fall in love with that law. The same way the author of Psalm 119, probably David did, as he extols the beauty of the law. But more importantly, we're going to fall in love with the one who gave us that law. Because he is incredible. We're going to learn to thank God for his law every single day. Because again, it instructs us. It gives us wisdom. It keeps us from living a life of regret. And we're going to see that God actually wants a relationship with his people. He saved them for relationship. And he goes to great lengths to give Moses these blueprints or this design for a tabernacle. A tabernacle is like a tent. It was a place where God's glory would dwell and he could be in relationship with his people. Uh, Look at Exodus 25.8. Exodus 25.8 says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wanted to dwell with them. He gave them specific designs, specific furniture, a specific outline. He initiated a plan whereby he could preserve his own holiness and yet be in relationship and communion with his people. Look at Exodus 29, 46. Exodus 29, 46 says, And they shall know that I am Yahweh, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them in relationship. I am Yahweh, their God. He wanted a relationship with Israel, and he wants a relationship with us too. And that's the third and final point. The third and final point is make time for God and his people. Make time for God and his people. And I was going to say spend time with God because he wants a relationship with us. But realize that, you know what, with our crazy, busy, hectic lives, it's not just spend time. We've got to make time. We've got to make time for God and for his people because many things are keeping us from intimacy with Jesus. 
Uh, we don't have time, right? We don't have interest. We don't have energy. But we were saved for a relationship. God saved us for a relationship with him, and we need to make time for him and for his people as well. We're going to see that God designed the office of the priesthood, uh, whereby he set apart certain men uh, to represent Israel before him. We're going to see that they worship together as a community, a community of people. Uh, they worked together as a community. They even gave together as a community. They lived life as a community. Uh, God uh, tells Moses to call a census. A census is when you number people and you use that for a reason. And he called a census and he told him that every single adult male was to pay a half shekel. And the purpose was to ransom himself from the Lord. Uh, this was a reminder now at the beginning of their journey that they had been ransomed by God. They had been set free from slavery by God and that ultimately everything they had belonged to him. So every single adult male, no matter what their economic status was, was to pay this half shekel as a reminder. We have been saved by God and we owe him everything. Look at uh, Exodus 30, 15. It says, the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give Yahweh's offering to make atonement for your lives. It's a great reminder for us as Christians. We've been ransomed from our sin and the penalty of our sin by Christ, and we owe everything to him. The natural response is to be generous, to be people who give. Well, as uh, Moses was up there with Yahweh receiving these uh, blueprints for the tabernacle, this design whereby God could dwell with his people in relationship, uh, Israel took a real detour. Uh, they didn't like the fact that uh, Moses was temporarily temporarily up there with Yahweh, and they longed for physical, concrete gods, like the gods in Egypt, uh, when again they saw the pyramids and the sphinx and those great monuments, and they wanted that stuff. They wanted to see it with their eyes. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, who was entrusted with leadership of the people, he said, give me your gold. And he collected their gold, and he fashioned it into a calf, and he said, he declared that this was their God. He said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Your gods? I, I mean, some people say he was giving deference to Yahweh. Yes, Yahweh and this calf saved you from Egypt. Or maybe Yahweh is riding on the calf, coming to save you from Egypt. Or maybe there were multiple calves, but whatever it is, God said to Moses, you need to get back down because your people have really lost their minds. He says they are quickly, they have quickly decided to worship a calf. And so Moses went back down the mountain and he was angry. And at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses took those two stone uh, tablets, that contract between the people and God, and he smashed it at the base of the mountain, symbolically saying, you have broken your covenant with Yahweh. Just a short amount of time and you've broken covenant with God. 
You didn't do what he asked. But even more important than Moses' anger was that God was angry. It says in Exodus 32, 9, Yahweh said to Moses, Exodus 32, 9, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. These people are impossible to lead, is what he was saying. Stiff neck, like an ox that a, a master is trying to get to go through a field, and the ox won't go in that direction, keeps resisting and resisting. God says these are stiff-necked people. They're hard to leave, hard to lead. And Moses intercedes. He says, please forgive them. And God says, I'll forgive them, but there will be consequences. And the ultimate consequences, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going to be with you. My presence is not going to be with you anymore. Do you feel far from the Lord? Do you feel like you just can't connect with Christ? Well, maybe it's due to your idolatry. Maybe in your heart or in your mind, you've constructed these idols and they're keeping you from the intimacy with Christ that you should have. And we see that in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So you're a Christian. You were sealed from the day of redemption and yet you're bringing deep pain to God's Holy Spirit. And we can do that when we construct these idols in our heart and our mind, these things that we have to have, and they become more important than our relationship with Yahweh. And you know, the people, they broke down and they repented, and they really repented, not only in their words, but in their actions. And they were ready to do as God commanded, and Moses interceded again, and he said, Yahweh, we can't go into the promised land if you're not with us. We need you with us. Please forgive your people. They have repented. And look at Exodus 34.1. Exodus 34.1, Yahweh said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. God then gives the Ten Commandments all over again. It's recorded all over again. Uh, why? Did Moses, the author, forget that he had just recorded those recently? No. It's because God said, we're going to start all over again. You've repented, and we're going to push the reset button. You know, you have a computer, and it's just all messed up. It won't work. And you're trying to fix it. You're trying to fix that. Finally, you get to the point where you say, you know what? I'm just going to shut it down. And you turn it off, and you turn it back on, and it's working. Or your phone. That app is spinning and spinning and spinning out of control. And finally, you say, I just got to shut my phone off. And you turn it off, and you turn it back on, and it's working. God said, you know what? We're going to start all over again. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the law. You have repented. I'm going to forgive you. We're going to move forward as if this never happened. We're going to start all over again. You know, think about that. If you were to go home today and be by yourself, you know, doing whatever you're doing, and Jesus appears and speaks to you and says, listen, I want you to know that I am fully aware of every sin that you've ever committed. I'm fully aware of everything you've done, everything you've thought, and every motive that you've had. But I love you, and because you've repented, I release you of everything. We're going to move forward 
pushing the reset button as if it had never even happened. How would you feel? Well, I'm sure that you would rejoice in your salvation every day. You would thank God for his law that keeps you from getting to that point again. And you would make time for a relationship with him and with others every single day, other Christians, God's people. And that is just what Israel did. Look at Exodus 35, 29. Exodus 35, 29. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that Yahweh had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to Yahweh. God restored his relationship with them, and they were so grateful, so overjoyed, that they went to execute and build those blueprints for the tabernacle just as he had instructed, and they gave of their resources. They gave so much out of gratitude that Moses had to say, stop giving. You've given too much, but they were so overwhelmed with thankfulness for their salvation and their restoration. And look at Exodus 39, 43. Exodus 39, 43. And Moses saw all the work, all the work that they had done in obediently constructing the tabernacle design that God had given them. As Yahweh had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. Israel followed those blueprints. And you know, they worked from constructing the most holy place where God's presence would dwell to the holy place, all the way out to the tents around the courtyard of the tabernacle. And there was a weird tension that they were left with because they had created this and designed this according to God's plan so that he could dwell with them. And yet in a weird way, they were still separated from him, pointing them to humanity's ultimate need for access to God through Jesus Christ. And that's why we see things like in John 1.14, where it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is the Greek word skeno. It means he tabernacled among us. He took up his tent among us. Jesus actually fulfilled what the tabernacle was designed to point us to. And in that lesson, we have another chart where we're going to look at all the furniture of the tabernacle and the pieces of the tabernacle and how they ultimately point us to our access to God and our redemption in Jesus Christ. And then after that tabernacle was faithfully constructed, if you look at Exodus 40, verse 38, Exodus 40, 38, it says, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God was with them. He was with them all the way to the promised land. And you know, Jesus promises to be with us too. He said in Matthew 28, 20, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, we have just begun to lift the cover on this incredible text. And we're going to spend from now until the month of May, until May, studying and digging deeper into this. And some of you, some of you may have noticed that we looked at 22 different passages in Exodus those are our 22 memory verses. 
Can you imagine how much you will know if you just commit to the memory verses? And then we've got the lessons, the homework that force you to stop and read and reread and reread slowly and think a little bit about how these things apply to our life. And we come here and we get to engage our hearts by hearing song and singing worship lyrics to the Lord, hearing uh, teachings from our gifted teaching team from selected portions of Exodus, and then finally, a gathering together in small groups where we can link arms, be honest and transparent with one another, and really hammer out this application to our lives. And you know, if you make it to the end, when you make it to the end, <laughs> I guarantee you, I guarantee you that the commitment it's going to take, the discipline, the effort, and the energy along with all that you invest, all that investment is going to pale in the light of the incredible reward that you will receive as you learn about God and yourself and his call on your life through the text of Exodus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these incredible women that you have gathered here, women that you have handpicked, uh, as your word says, from before the foundation of the world uh, to belong to you, to know you. God, help us all to, uh, even from the beginning of this study, to commit to these truths that you show us. God, may we rejoice in our salvation every single day. No matter how discouraged we are or tired or weary, may we remember that we are people that you have chosen to save and at such a high cost. God, may we truly learn to love your word and thank you for your word. May we not despise it and see it as a terrible taskmaster. But since it's pointed us to our need for Christ, may we love it and realize that it keeps us from making mistakes. It keeps us from rebelling against you and living a life of regret. And God, please help us all to determine to make time for you. You want a relationship with us, God. Please help us not to be so stiff neck and foolish as to not spend time with you and keep you as the priority relationship in our life. And may we learn to carve out time in our schedules for our community of sisters here at Compass, Lord. God, we, we will humbly and easily admit that we can't do any of this without your help. And we know that we come before you absolutely and utterly dependent upon Christ alone. And so we close in Jesus' name. Amen.